Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 405. Not episode 305. As last week, I apparently said episode 304 instead of 404. Um, shout out to the hardest working man in the digital game, my boy Jared, who spotted that. <laughs> How did I miss a whole hundred episodes? Who knows? This week's guest is Nathaniel Martello-White, which is kind of relevant to last week's guest, actually, because Nathaniel is in is currently in Channel 4's Deceit alongside Neve Algar, who was on last week. But he's also been in a load of stuff that I really rate, so it felt like an obvious choice to get him on and have a chat. And you'll hear from the conversation that it was the correct choice, because I'm just incredibly excited about what's ahead head for this dude he was in um small acts which i've raved about a whole load and i've got another actor who was in small acts on in a couple of weeks but i won't get into that now um yeah i really like what i've seen from this guy on screen he was also in i I hate susie we talk about all of these things because they're all shows that i've absolutely adored but we also talk about his approach the changes in focus in in much of film and television his plans going forward his work in theater everything man it's a really good chat and i think you're going to enjoy it as ever we're brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com head over there to get any merch to support the podcast patreon.com forward slash scroobius pip is another way to support the podcast but yeah let's just get right into it right i feel we should just jump into it. i know i normally do a if you're a first-time listener, go and check out this and that. But I just I want to get into this chat. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, it went places I didn't know it was going to go and was overjoyed that it did go. So, yeah, this is episode 405 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Nathaniel Martello-White. Right, I'm joined today by Nathaniel Martello White. How are you, sir? I just I kind of started to ask this before we got recorded, yeah, but yeah. it's the biggest question in the world right now. One, because of the year we've all had, mm. two, because of an absolute heat wave, three, yeah. because we're recording this the day after what has been dubbed F- Freedom Day. So it's a big question. Mm, it's a but big I do want to know how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 a plethora of things. Like I'm I'm on the one hand, um I feel um hopeful. On the other hand, I feel a bit jaded after the, the you know year and a half we've had. I guess Freedom Day was it Freedom Day? You know, you got like Boris was at home, oh, nice, isolating. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like vaccine passports are being spoken about in clubs. Is it going to be pubs? I I personally got out of London for a few days because I was like, you know what, I need some R and I need to unplug. Great. And I think what I live in Crystal Palace, and even though we've got a great park close by and whatnot i've just found it and i don't know how you feel about this but being in london over lockdown has been very difficult sort of escaping that feeling just that sort yeah. of covid and maybe that's everywhere in the world but i think for me it's the first time it's been very difficult to escape you know that that sort of oppressive feeling are you based in london i'm not i'm out in essex and and i i thought it was a blessing man because i could yeah, just yeah. get away to to fields and and yeah. I don't know, some sort of distance from the overwhelming mm. atmosphere. I, I tell you what it is, is that in the industry that I'm in, there's a sort of performance element to it, which is sort of like yeah. very high. So the expectation is that you've got to be 100%. You know, if you do a take, it's got to be a great take. If you're doing a draft yeah. on a script, you know, you want it to be a great draft. Um, if you're directing, better be good notes. So it's sort of like... I don't think there's much room, and I think we're seeing this in other sort of industries like sport, like the football, we can get into that. Yeah. There, there's very sort of low tolerance for, for sort of how the human nature of things at the moment, you know, and the reality yeah. is we're living in a whole new reality and, and the PTSD element of it is very strong, yeah. even in a way that I don't think we consciously understand yet. So it's a very big question. I guess I feel a bit of trepidation about the future in terms of the COVID umbrella and 
and how we reclaim our identity as as a non-institutionalized society, but a society who are sort of, you know, I want to travel to this country, you know, so I'm going to book a ticket and, you know, oh, I have to go through 10 levels of sort of um, administrative mayhem to just do that trip. Maybe I'm going to have to find different ways, like going to the seaside or going down to Cornwall, you know, or just doing different sorts of escapes whilst we're in this transition. It's, it's such a mad one because I f- the thing that annoys me is how how politicised it all gets because I think totally. COVID passports are a bad idea, but then yeah. I also think a free-for-all is a bad idea. I think yeah, we yeah, should exactly. maybe hold off a bit l- longer and things like that, whereas mm. if you're against COVID passports, then it seems, it'll often seem like you're an anti-vaxxer or anti-masker, which yeah, I'm not exactly. at all. I think mm. there's a lot of different solutions that we don't, Social media has trained us in the last few years to pick a side yeah. r- rather than to analyse and find the good and bad. But mm. on on the anxiety front, yeah. have you felt you've kind of had a dry run? Because I I was filming mm. in Canada when, when Neve Algar was filming a, oh, yeah. a deceit with mm. a, 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 you guys, and we were talking a lot, and it felt like because the film industry could get up and running early, but with a lot Mm. of precautions, with a lot of testing, with a lot of masks, with a lot of changes of how you interact on set. Mm. It felt to me like it it was kind of a blessing to prep me for the gradual return into lockdowns loosening and things like that. Have you had that? I feel like this. I didn't really stop throughout lockdown. I was doing rewrites. I was doing audition tapes for different shows. I did Deceit. So for me, I've come into this other side and even though our industry kept going and found ingenious ways to carry on, I'm feeling more the cost of that now because I know yeah. some of my mates, they just checked out. You know, they were like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the opportunity to stop. And I think I was concerned about, you know, losing steam and, and falling behind. So I carried yeah. on. So I think now we're sort of getting ready for the bounce back. Now I'm like, oh, oh damn, I need that R&R. You know, I, I need yeah. actually to sort of be more on the self-care front and, and sort of focus that, you know, for a bit alongside the work. But so so it, it's a mixed bag, if if yeah. I'm honest, you know, I, I think there was a, a bit of carrying on so relentlessly has been, I don't know if it's all been good. I, th- I think there's so much of this industry that is um, explained post the event. Like you look at a lot of careers so and true. you know that everyone just stumbled th- through it. Yet You can look back and mm. go, well, this was a choice. And I fluked it on the pandemic. As it started, I was exactly the same. I was like, right, I'm going to throw myself into scripts I'm working on, get loads of writing done. Yeah, yeah. And then at some point I hit a wall and that frustrated me at the time. But now looking back, that was a blessing Mm. because it meant I had this period where I went, okay, allow it. Mm. Normally I'd hit a wall and be on my own case. With this, I went, it's a fucking pandemic, man. If I've hit a wall, I've hit a wall. Let's take... Let's take a minute. Mm. And then I got an acting mm. gig in, in Canada. So I had that. Dope, dope. I've had that mix throughout of, it's, it's, it's still hard. I still look mm. at what I feel I've got to do and feel I haven't got anything done. And you have to remind mm. yourself, well, prior to this pandemic, there were t- two shorts that I've got now that weren't even mm. an idea there back then. It's the it's the time warping of the pandemic. It, totally. feels, it feels like yesterday and it feels like f- for five years ago, all at once so absolutely yeah it's like when you try and trace back the feeling of life before lockdown where your center was what that feeling was it's quite hard to trace that moment back i remember the day before lockdown i was uh, driving down to my partners in east dulwich and i think i popped into mns to pick up some groceries and uh, went to the pub across the road and it was like there was one other person in there and the barman was almost like that last that last Guinness, you know. And the barman yeah. was like, yeah, it looks like we're going to be shutting tomorrow. And it was like this sort yeah. of very kind of um, somber conversation. But none of us could have known, do you know what I mean, as he was pouring that yeah. pint, that it was going to yeah. be, that the whole world was going to change and maybe, maybe indefinitely. So... I remember that moment fondly because I sort of feel like, wow, the world has, the world has changed so much since then. And so much of it feels so cinematic now. It might be the mm. industry that we're in, but there's so many yeah. moments like that that I look back of and I totally. swear there's a wide lens on it. There's a slight filter. It's all yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Like it's, it's shining in a specific it's way. So and you're true. like, oh man, 
Mm. I remember that day. But yeah. speaking of, of looking back, can we rewind all the way back? Like you've mentioned South London, you've mentioned East London there. Where did you yeah. grow up? What was your area? Mm. So I grew up on Brixton Hill, uh, yep. South South London boy. Come from a, my whole family, like my, my nan and my mum, you know, all very South London, Brixton. Yeah, so I grew up on Brixton Hill at a time when, because we were on Brixton Hill, it wasn't very edgy. You know, it was quite like we lived in a nice council, you know, Victorian conversion on Beachdale yeah. Road. It was a nice area. Brockwell Park wasn't so far away. I used to jump on my BMX bike, head to Brockwell Park. My cousin, my mum's an identical twin. So my mum's twin sister lived further up Brixton Hill on Dumbarton Road. So my my yeah. my cousins were sort of like my half brothers. Do you know what I mean? Um, and yeah, sisters yeah, yeah, because yeah. we shared half of the same genetics because our mums were identical twins anyway. Um, yeah. So it was great. Even though I was an only child until eleven, I sort of had them as extended uh, siblings. I just yeah. remember bombing around on a bike and having a really sort of adventurous and free spirited childhood. You know, I just felt very um, fortunate. I don't know. I just felt like. It was always like it's very hard in London to have that sense of space and have that sense of like um, yeah. you can go anywhere and you can do anything within your bubble. Um, and I think the irony was um, when we moved to Clapham, in fact, when I was around 10, Clapham was edgier. Clapham yeah. North was sort of edgier. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Landor Road. And I don't know if you know Landor Road yeah, and stuff, yeah, but like yeah. suddenly when I was moving into adolescence, you know, I became more aware of of this gang culture. Yeah. That was sort of rife in the 80s yeah. and 90s. It's an interesting one because Brixton has always had association with with some kind of, of, of trouble, whether it be the riots or whatever else. But I also think it's the one part of South, because all my family are from South London, it's the one part of South that lends itself to the possibility of a career or a life in the arts. And it's because of Brixton Academy and Brixton Electric mm. and all of these, because it's the the, the place of South that had yeah, the yeah. venues, it does open you up to going, all oh, right, there might be mm. some stuff I can do outside of the typical work here or, you know, as you said, the gang culture element mm. of, of the darker options. So do you feel that kind of yeah, totally. gave you that idea of, oh, I could do something in the arts. I could I could make a career out of something I enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a footballer, to be honest. Like when I was when I was younger, I was just like my stepdad, who I called dad, who raised me uh, from very young, from when I was about three. He didn't really take me out to the park. We were more doing swimming and different activities. But where other dads were maybe like as soon as their kid was learning how to walk, they were throwing a football yeah. at their foot. I didn't have that. So by the time I sort of joined the local team, all those kids yeah. were already better. And I was playing yeah. catch up. But I, I was just... Obsessed with Man United, because my dad was a Man United supporter, and obsessed with playing on the right wing. You know, and it was a, it was a thwarted yeah. dream, you know, that kind of ended maybe when I was around 13 or 14, because already that's too late, right? If, yeah. you, if you're not good enough by yeah. then. But funnily enough, when I used to play football, I used to freeze when we used to play matches. So in training, I was always like one of the top players right. in the team. And then when it was match day, I'd get performance sort of fright. And I'd just make mistakes and just not do what I was doing in training which is the opposite to who I yeah. am as an actor. And so I definitely think the creativity, the competitiveness and the ambition of that translated itself into acting. Who, 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 were, sure. your, who were your United right-wingers of choice in, in that era? Who were your eyes on? Good question, good question. Well, I love a bit of Konchelskis. Yeah. Konchelskis was dangerous. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, mad dangerous. David Beckham. Yeah. I mean, Beckham was just, you know, they don't really make him like that anymore, do they? Yeah. He was... Um, something else. Loved Ryan Giggs. Kanchelskis felt like that that first era of British fans having someone good enough that, that they're willing to learn an mm. awkward name. It felt, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it felt like that was the first one that people seemed to know mm. rather than go, oh, what's, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Giggs totally, Beckham, yeah. of course. No, it was just a very, you know, it's funny how I think football, footballers, the narrative around football. When you try and explain why football is significant, it's like, well, it's a narrative. It's like a long running TV show. Yeah. You know, it's like there are all these players and these players are sort of, there are regular cast, you know, there are series regulars and yeah. sort of how good they do, how they fall. Um, the stories around them are all significant. And, and so it's easy to just, you know, write off the football as just being, you know, whatever. It's just some blokes trying to get a ball in the net. 
Yeah, mate, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. I do think the culture of it is something that we have to analyze and accept i guess because it can be easily written off and there's as we've seen recently there's horrible parts of it like i've been a Millwall fan since i was a kid so i've seen the ugliness Mm. that can come from football but i've also seen the absolute joy and the beauty of it is it's things like i i I think it can be a key place for, for breaking through the boundaries of of racism of all these other things because i remember at Millwall the first few black players that came through mm. and you'd see these kind of lifelong racist idiots start to s- s- soften and start yeah, to yeah. cheer someone's name. Wow. And it makes me think of like when M- M- Michael Cashman was the first gay character in Coronation Street. No, in EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. They got to know the character first and then it was revealed he was gay. It makes me think of, of Lil Nas X. He got to number one first in the country yeah, and yeah. rap charts. Mm. And then in two scenes that are notoriously homophobic, mm. turned around and went, oh, by the way, you know you already love me. I'm a gay man. Wow. And wow. and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And I think that can be a, a thing in football is you can't get through to these hard-headed racists by just shouting at them. And it's tough because mm. I definitely think fuck the lot of them but also that's that's the that's the yeah. angry side of me that's not the let's break through and change it side absolutely so, yeah well the thing is and just so beautifully put um i, I sort of think uh, like i was having a conversation with a friend of mine about this there comes a point where look man the education's out there you you've got the intel you know that sort of systemic cultures can can breed all sorts of you know, neg- it can breed gang culture. It can, you, you do have some young black men going off the rails, but we've had Obama as a president and untold examples of black culture persevering and role models. And, and my God, you know, Marcus Rashford has been feeding the kids all year. And it's like, you have all the information you need. So now it's just about envy and jealousy. You're just jealous yeah. and you can't deal with it. You know what I mean? And so I'm with you. It's like, well, you know what? If it comes down to envy and jealousy, then fuck you. You know, if you can't deal with that, yeah. that's about you and your stuff. That's not even really about racism. You know, that's about you being unhappy in yourself, you know, and so you're unable to embrace others. You know, I, I feel dubious about how much press the trolling gets because on the one hand, I sort of feel like if you didn't give it the press, would those people feel so so sort of galvanized to keep trolling? At the same time, I think it needs to be exposed. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think we should print their mugshots on the front of newspapers once they're found. Let's expose them. 100%. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. I, th- I think it's such... With all these emotional subjects, mm. we get knee-jerk reactions. Like, mm. I've seen a lot of anger at the fact that Instagram, for example, can automatically block, you know, if someone plays two seconds of a Beyonce track, right. but can't automatically block r- racist language. But I think yeah, that, yeah. that overlooks or... <laughs> It misses key parts. I think if Instagram algorithmically was to block racist language, mm. that is forgetting that so much of this language has been reclaimed by the very people that it's being used against. So automatic mm. blocking of use of the N-word of other things mm. could end up having accounts t- taken away from from young black men and, and women. And the easiest example I've got is... I happily and excitedly and passionately stand up for the LGBTQ community, all my queer friends. But five, ten years ago, queer was the ultimate slur against right, right. the yeah, LGBTQ yeah. community. So if we were at that point, we would have banned the word queer, which would have then marginalised a lot of the queer community. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's not as simple as it looks. I do think we need bans and, bl- and blockings, but I think on that kind mm. of thing, Instagram and that need to to pony up and put money behind humans looking yeah, quickly yeah. at these complaints, at these these reports, rather than mm. an algorithm saying it hasn't broken our standards or it has yeah, or whatever yeah. else, yeah. you know? It's complex subjects. Yeah, mate. You know, I, I'm with you. It's like, put the humans behind it. I mean, I guess what's been really... It's interesting that you asked me about, like, where I grew up and how it all began. You know, I guess I, I've also witnessed a lot of internalised racism, you know, where there's a lot of kind of black-on-black crime and, and sure. black on black yeah. anger and i think what a lot of those young guys don't realize is they are internalizing that racism you know and sort of projecting yeah. it on on one another and um you know i guess for me it's like you think things like homophobia sexism racism you think there's a linear sort of road you're going down where these things are improving and being addressed and then you realize oh no it's a cycle in fact things yeah. improve we get to a point you think we're pushing beyond it 
and then we sort of spiral down and it, and it starts again. But hopefully, I, I do feel like a lot of white people are much more aware of whiteness in a way that yeah. I don't think before. They'd be like, well, white, you know, like, I'm just Ben, you know, yeah. I'm just yeah, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, what do you yeah. mean white? It's like, oh, no, 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 white, white is an idea. Just like black is an idea. And I think now we're sort yeah. of aware of that and we're deconstructing what that means. Then hopefully we can progress. The language can progress. Um, I yeah. think that will even change what black means, you know, the yeah. idea of blackness. I think you're right. There's an amazing book by a writer called Emma Dabiri called mm. What White People Can Do Next. And, and right. behind the slightly baiting title, like that's intentional. Mm-hmm. One of the things that blew me away was she spoke about when race was invented, which to my mm. mind was like, what, oh, what do you mean race was invented? And it yeah. was. There wasn't black and white. Mm. It was invented in the Caribbean in the slaving um, right, right. world because they wanted to divide the Afro-Caribbean slaves from the mm. Irish in, indentured slaves right. so that they could incent because if they came together, it would be possible to overthrow. So it mm. became that the black people mm. could never get out of slavery, whereas the white people had a, had a possibility of climbing above right. this. Therefore, it, it caused a division mm. in people who were both oppressed by the same people. Wow. And... Stuff like that blows my mind. Like there was a point where they were deciding if the Irish were going to be black or not. It's and again, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. But then you look at the term black and go, right, that covers such a wide variation. And the fact mm. that the Jewish aren't necessarily considered white. Totally. They're as white main, mm. mostly as anyone, but they were a, 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 a put-upon-and-held-down community, so they weren't put into the bracket yeah. of white at that point when race mm. was... Was developed, but I mean, you spoke of examples of black excellence, and I think Mm -hmm. one of the great things in recent history is getting that into entertainment because I do believe Mm. that there's a certain area of people who will watch an amazing documentary or TED talk or read a book like What What White People Can Do Next, Mm. but there's a large area of people who won't, but they will watch certain TV shows. And I think the first time that you came to my attention was in. Gorilla, which mm. had s- such an amazing cast with Idris Elba, Afrida F- Pinto, Z- Z- Zowie Ashton, w- Wunmi Musaka, who's been blowing me away for a minute now in She's Loki and Lovecraft mm. Country, his house, and Kiri again with uh, with yourself. So how was that to work on a project mm. like that? It felt like one of the first of several, and I'll speak about another one that you were involved in afterwards, but one sure, of the first sure. of several that was going, right, let's document these parts of black history that have been mm. overlooked because we don't teach history accurately mm. in schools. So let's put it into entertainment. How was that to be part of? I mean, for me, that was the probably the most significant opportunity I've had as an actor because I was sort of breaking into TV. Like that, for me, I'd done episodes of telly before, the odd episode of this, the odd episode of that. But I was a theatre actor. You know, I've been treading the boards yeah for four, 450 quid a week, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it was all about the work and it's always been about the work for me, driven by being an artist first and foremost, and then everything else comes after that. But I've been, I've been trying to break into TV and I think that I was getting down to the wire on some re- very exciting roles, but they were always going for sort of people who were on telly or on telly more than yeah. I was. And then John Ridley comes to town and he's like, no, nah, I'm ripping all that up. I want to see everyone, you know, uh, show me who's out yeah. there. And so the irony is it takes an African-American to sort of give me my break in TV. And I remember they were really struggling to cast the role. They just couldn't find the actor. And um, John Ridley came to see a show I was in called People, Places and Things, just all about um, addiction and recovery. And it was a hit show and it was on in West End. And it was literally one of those things where I think he came to see it. He sat down um, he came to see Denise Goff, another actress, who ended up in Gorilla for another role. And I came right. on and did my first scene and he was like, that's the guy. I didn't know that that's what he said. But then so I was called in the next day for or a few days later for an audition. And you know, like when your agent says, oh, the showrunner came to see the show and really likes you. I just thought they were gassing me a bit, you know, just like, all right, you know, whatever. And then yeah. I started reading the material. I was like, wow, this is like a sort of Malcolm X sort of very flawed kind of Malcolm X-like character. And I knew he'd been loosely inspired by Michael X, you know, who was right. sort of the the kind of, he was basically a gangster. I mean, he was a sort I was going to say, flawed, flawed is the key there on, on Michael X, because he was, he was essentially a hustler and a thug, but yeah. 
he gave some good speeches and inspired some good mm. shit basically totally i mean that's sort of how i saw the character a bit of a yeah. kind of uh what's the word false prophet um which i thought yeah. wow that's super exciting to get to play and so i just went in i, I did my audition and john really put me through my paces and i really there's something magical happened in that room i keyed into something and i and i felt very match fit i think doing that west end show over and over again you know a thousand people in the audience that's tough i'm in a room i'm on camera there's two people in the room that's easy in comparison yeah. and so i sort yeah. of dropped this audition that went down very well and then they they called me afterwards and was like don't cut your hair so i was like, all right well that might you know that must be a good sign and then yeah, yeah and then yeah, yeah. i think three weeks later i got offered the role and it was sort of like it was a turning point in my career because i knew with that character i could do something you know i, yeah. I could do some damage and then it was just just what an important project to be a part of it was sort of you know like when your life is changing you get an opportunity that changes your life and then there's also the creative side of it so i was yeah. like so many things are changing with this opportunity so for me i was buzzing you know the whole way yeah. through and, and and went quite deep into that character like i stayed in the role in between takes and, and sort of went right. went quite method on a lot of it and um you know i became very close friends with babu who was in the show as well yeah um, it was just a great company of actors and, and also what an important show to be a part of. So, yeah, it was an honour. I love that. And I love you touching upon the kind of feeling m- m- match fit. I have that every time I finish mm. like a longer show, I'm like, look, get me auditions now. Because yeah, at, yeah, yeah, at, yeah, yeah. at this point, my brain is accepting dialogue, is mm. accepting all of this just in <laughs> yeah, the easiest yeah. way. It's like, honestly, yeah. get me on stuff. But um, I love hearing that the story of them coming to see you in your play. It makes me think mm-hmm. of um, hearing about how Aaron Pierre was cast in Underground Railroad recently by Barry mm. Jenkins and that mind-blowing idea of someone literally iconic in the game being in the audience and Crazy. going, all right, this is the guy. And I think what Barry Jenkins did with Underground Railroad, similar was happening in the UK with Steve McQueen, on on small acts i think there totally, was there totally. was these stories being told the the british side of this history the american side obviously different eras but mm. how was that to be part of because i think yeah, steve mcqueen is one of the most important storytellers of, yeah, of our time yeah. so mm. how was that to get on that project and, mm. and 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 mangrove being the one that kind of kicked a lot of it off and again you talk about casts Letitia wright mm. uh, Arashenda Sandow, Jack Loudon, Richie Campbell, a, crazy, a, a Sam Spruill, who I did a show with a few years back, and I learnt he he probably won't remember me, but I was watching that guy because he was like, I've seen this guy in loads of shit over the years. Mm-hmm. I need to mm-hmm. I need to see what he's doing he's and learn from him. Dope. So yeah, he's uh, amazing, bro, right? It was like very rarely you you get to step on a set where well a oh there's one of my heroes like literally like. I've watched so many Steve McQueen YouTube interviews. I'm just yeah, like, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I love art. So I'm always at the Tate Modern or the Tate Britain, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or the Saatchi or whatever. I, I'm, I'm very, in fact, when I'm writing a script and I'm redrafting, I always go to exhibitions between drafts to just sort of allow right. my mind to just sort of process what I'm thinking for the next draft and, and whatnot. I, I think the authorship of art, painting and sculpture is very similar to filmmaking and acting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about authorship and, and sort of the um, the artist's sort of subjective experience manifesting in something. And um, so I knew Steve McQueen's work through the art scene. And then, yeah. I, you know, I loved Hunger, 12 Years a Slave, Shame, the list goes right. on. So to, to sort yeah. of walk into a room and audition for the guy, you got to hold your nerve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's yeah. like, you can't be going in there all getting like, oh my God, it's Steve McQueen. And I, I was just like, look, man, I'm, I consider myself to be a craftsman, like I'm about the work. So let me just go in and be about the work and be, you know, and and, and be how I always like to be, which is sort of treat people with uh, humility and respect and to be a pro. And, you know, I did two auditions for him, originally auditioned for um, uh, Sean Parks, his role, um, I right. the name, um, Frank Critchlow. And, yeah. and then they called me in for Rodan Gordon uh, for the second audition. And mate, I can't tell you, that first rehearsal, Letitia Wright, Rashenda, Richie, Jack Loudon and McQueen just at the table, just just sort of like going through the material. It was like a yeah, it was like a dream. I, I, another you know like another performative moment, just being like wow, yeah, I can't believe I'm in this room, yeah. you know. Um, and then that carried on into the shoot. And look, you know, it was like 
knowing you're a part of a very important story that happened in real life. And at the yeah. same time, knowing that these moments don't come along often. So it's important to enjoy it. So we bust a lot of joke on that set. Bust a lot of joke. Yeah. Oh, really? We were busting so much joke, bro. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like it, the thing that Steve McQueen captured throughout all of them was a party atmosphere. Like you're on these really heavy subjects. You're on these really heavy things. But but it was essential in London and in the UK at that time within mm. those communities to have that enjoyment and mm. relaxation because otherwise, man, life is unbearable. Totally. You know, there's constant threat, constant constant issues. So mm. you need to be going, right, as soon as I can have a breather, let's have a drink, let's have a dance, let's have a... A good time. Absolutely, man. I love that that went, I love that that bled through into set. I love that that was part of it as well. This is going to be Mate. heavy for all of us, mm. so let's enjoy it when we can enjoy it because totally. there's going to be points when we can't. Even Steve would be, you know, even he would have his moments where he was, you know, he was busting joke, um, and then he'd go back yeah. into the Guardiola high press, you know, which was sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah, how yeah, his yeah. sets are run, which is just super right. focused, man. Like everybody has to be on it. Um, even the essays, you know, essays have to be on it because you could be doing yeah. a brilliant scene. The camera falls on an essay who isn't in it and, and the whole thing, you know, the whole illusion gets gets sort of destroyed. So I love it. Yeah. Love and then, it. you know, I was really again, it, that was one of those to get to work with him after working with John Ridley and the two of them worked on 12 Years a Slave together. Again, I just felt very honoured. I, I, I love it. One of the reasons I was excited to have this conversation is... I'm hype for what is ahead for you as a writer and director, partly because I've enjoyed your stuff and seen you've been around some dope people to learn from. Yeah, yeah. Partly totally. because like I come from I made my name in the spoken word scene and I mm, you know, I mm. I know you've you've had a collection of poetry out, but mm. hearing you talk about art there, it gets me even more excited for it. Because one of the things that I think is m- missing at points from cinema and TV today it was there in French cinema and in Europe and in a lot of cinema from from old, but it's going to sound weird, but I think we have an over-focus on tying everything up and everything having to lead and make sense. And you go into an exhibition and you might like a painting and you won't know why. It's not explained. It's not all tied up. There's just a feeling. And I think that was a big thing that we've... at times lost from s- cinema Sorry, is trying yeah. to capture that feeling and that moment mm, rather than going, mm. here's the whole explanation of this yeah. and that, or, or this got a bit weird because they were asleep or cause this, it's like, no, don't mm, explain anything. Mm, Just mm. allow it to have that feeling in that moment. So Absolutely. how do you feel as, as a, as a writer and as a creator for the future, I guess, like what's your focus there? Yeah. I've got some strong uh, opinions about why that happens in fact. And I think uh, hit me with them. I'll tell you what it is. It's development that sometimes yeah. in a development process, when you're developing a script, the financiers yeah. or the producers always have this default position of, we want it to make sense because they're yeah. worried of, yeah. you know, being too obscure or being too off the grid. And, and somebody like me, I have to really protect the things I know are what you're talking about. Yeah. Poetic, yeah. ambiguous. I love subtext. Yeah. I love the poetic statement over the literal statement of, of what you're saying. Yeah. So I, Completely. I will go, I go down to the mattresses over things that I am trying to protect in, in the movie, even to the point where if, if, you know, I, I would rather the movie not be made and get made in a way where, where that isn't what it is. Cause then I'm not arriving as the artist that, you know, that I think I can be. So yeah. I think development pushes a lot of projects in the UK into that mold. I think once you're established, they get you to, I mean, even McQueen talks about this with hunger when they wanted to shoot that, you know, that um, duologue scene between the priest and Bobby Sass, yeah. one, one setup. Obviously, people were freaking out, you know, like even says in an interview that they wanted him to do loads of coverage and he refused. He was like, no, this is what it has to be. Best scene in a movie, you know, and so yeah. it's just you just have to really sort of follow your instincts. In terms of what's ahead of me, I, I can't I can't announce it properly because it's not been announced yet, but I'm getting ready to direct my first feature film um, Amazing. in September. So I'm, I'm stepping exciting. up. Yeah, yeah, I'm properly stepping up. It's 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 fascinating uh, what you say there because weirdly, I was I was talking to Neve Algar about this, and I want to mm. talk about a deceit next because I love that. But that I was chatting to someone a little while ago, and oh, I worked with some directors on a BBC show called Out of Her Mind, who shot mm. in script order 
And they wow. said, we do this because Tarantino does this. And they said, we were told all along that Tarantino shoots in script order because he can, because he's Tarantino. And they argued, yeah, but maybe he's Tarantino because he shoots in script order. And I think it's similar. Nice. I was talking to the reason it came up with Neve is because of Ridley Scott mm. shooting always multicam, all angles covered. So every take, wow. you've got it there. And again, people say, well, it's Ridley Scott. Of course he can have every camera set up so essentially each scene is is a stage is a play yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's all it's all in play mm. but then you go well again you flip that and go well maybe that's why he's ridley fucking scott yeah, yeah. maybe it's not he can get away with it because he's him so yeah, i think yeah. it's important particularly at those early stages to go no mm. here's here's the hills i'll die on here's what i want to yeah, yeah, do yeah. here's what yeah. i want to shoot here's how i want to make it so, yeah, I completely feel that on the totally. kind of sticking yeah. to your guns early doors rather than compromising because, well, you're a new voice, it's a risk, it's so on and so forth. It's like, no, either we make it or we don't make it. Totally, you know, yeah. Take your pick. Yeah. Well, absolutely, mate. And and it's sort of like, for me, like, I love telly and I'm developing. I've got a pilot uh, in development with uh, HBO. I'm writing a second episode Amazing. for them, a backup script for Blackter, which was my uh, the first play I wrote that was produced at the Young Vic. Um, and that for me is a sort of, I'm really excited about that because I'm I'm, I'm going into kind of Mulholland Drive, Barton Fink territory with it. You know, it's sort of it. um, these four black actors kind of in a sort of purgatory, you know, a purgatory of the white gaze, you know, a purgatory of the of the sort of systemic culture that that surrounds them, but going genre with it and really enjoying that and sort of pushing the, the horror, you know, of, of yeah. some of that um, and the comedy and the humor. And so that's one example of sort of, you know, what I'm working on. And then, you know, the, the, the feature film about sort of ex- explicitly saying what it what it's about, again, is a kind of like a family melodrama, you know, ex- it's yeah. exploring race in a satirical way. And I've been writing it for three years and yeah, and now it's time to, to step up. And I have to say, you know, it is sort of ironic that when you get the opportunity to finally step up, you're going into COVID, you know, it's sort of like we're still in this pandemic and restrictions are being lifted. And, you know, I'd be lying if there wasn't a bit of trepidation about, oh, my God, you know, like, how often are we going to have to shut down because there's a positive, yeah. you know. So so it's funny how you, you dream about having certain things and, and then the world changes and maybe those dreams, they're still important, but they have a different flavour to them. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a mad one. I was, I was chatting to, to, to Puffer S.A. do about this, mm. how he's kind of worked his whole career to get his big break and then he has... yeah. I May Destroy You and yeah, Gangs incredible. of London both come out and then the world stops yeah, and yeah, the whole industry yeah. freezes. He's like, man, this was meant to be my moment. And that, and obviously it will continue on. The dude's got crazy a talent. Yeah, but he's killing it. It's yeah. mad how stuff like that can happen that totally. you've, you've hustled all this time. And, and similarly there, if you've got this TV series almost over the line, you've got mm-hmm. this feature good to go, and then the world goes... Chill mate. for a minute, mate. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I can't chill for a minute. This That's not yeah, how yeah. momentum works. Totally. Or it's like, yeah, you get to do it. You get to do that thing you've always dreamed about. You're going to have to do it under these conditions. And yeah, these conditions yeah. are going to be harsh and they're going to be challenging for your mental health and you're going to have to endure them. But you'll still get to do it. you still get to do that. Yeah. You know, that big lead in the TV show or get to direct your feature. Mate, it's, it's an interesting one. In 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 my days as as a rapper and spoken word artist, my mm. early gigs were all on street corners, and they were rough. Nice. And it meant that when I could do gigs indoors, I had no nerves, anything, because it was like mm. a treat. So yeah, hopefully, yeah. that's going to be the case with this. You, your first so. feature is going to be a fucking chore and hard work. But when this is over, you get to do your next ones. So you're going to be like, it's Bro, a breeze. There's no restrictions. This is yeah, yeah, exactly. And joke. the second one I'm I'm preparing is set in Jamaica. So hopefully. Hopefully that would yeah. be a good, you know, a different sort of, yeah, different vibes. Perfect. You know. Well, I mean, you touched upon the kind of the mental impact of uh, of these things there. Mm. And it's something I wanted to talk about with Deceit, because I think mm. there are some parallels, because Deceit is based on a true event, and it's about essentially undercover agents. And your, your character in it almost feels like a counsellor, a Samaritan, like someone for Neve's character to unload to. And I think it's a really interesting parallel because obviously the risks are incredibly different, but we don't talk enough, I don't think, in the acting world 
about the impact of having to go to these dark places to play these dark scenes or these dark mm. m- moments mm. and not necessarily making sure we put ourselves through the right aftercare, yeah. make sure we get our heads in the right place afterwards. As you mm-hmm. said, on 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 Gorilla, remaining in character on certain mm-hmm. things like that and it not being the nicest of characters overall. Yeah. You know, some yeah. positives, but not the nicest. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that can have an impact. So like, how did you find doing the seat and how was it as a, as a, a study in that way of what we do? It's so interesting because it's like, there was a parallel, I think exactly that, the parallel of, she's going undercover and, and, and creating this persona and that that's going to cost something, yeah. you know, there's going to be a cost to that. And, and in a way I almost likened it to like being in recovery and, you know, I'm not in recovery, but I did a show all about recovery and I almost felt like I could have been her sponsor in AA, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, someone yeah. who's been through it, you know, who's, who's, you know, achieved that sobriety, who's trying to keep her from, from slipping off. And because she sort of has this hubris about her and the mission. And so, it was very exciting that it wasn't just a sort of like, I'm the good cop trying to stop her sort of, you know, I- I'll say it quite candidly, you know, I wasn't playing the magical Negro role. You know, I was playing a role which was, he was nuanced. He had his own backstory. They had a bit of history in, on an intimate level that maybe yeah. they, they'd hooked up or we, we'd sort of had it so that maybe they had an affair in the past. And, that uh, you know, they, had, they were both keeping their egos in check because I think Baz feels like he's being left out of the decisions and the conversations yeah. that are going on around the case. And that's creating frustration around him. And, and, and Sadie's feeling like I'm sort of trying to sort of rain on her parade, you know, and not allowing her to shine in the way or not, you know, not celebrating yeah. Yeah, 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 how, yeah. how good, how good it's going. And I'm trying to remind her, this is real, this is dangerous. So it was amazing. Yeah. To, to get to explore that on a meta, on a meta level, you know, it's really interesting because I hadn't even realized it, but it goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think what I loved about the interaction of those two characters is all that was unexplained. Mm, totally. There was clearly history, but it wasn't necessarily put down on paper f- for us as the viewer. It wasn't even that clear what your role was in these conversations, if it was official, if it was personal. And I thought that was great that it was just, no, you don't need to know everything. Mm. What's key is the connection and the conversations, yeah. You don't need to know everything. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's what I loved about those scenes. And also, it's very rare that you get to rock up to a TV show and all your scenes are with the protagonist, one-on-one, just a bunch of two-handers. It was great. You know, and Neve's such a a force and such a a, a playful actress. And, I, you know, that's my my mantra is all about you prepare like a crazy person so you can be impulsive and spontaneous on the floor. And so I felt like we were a similar breed of performer. And also, you know, I've been, I've been locked down for like most of the years to get to go out and do a show was a real privilege. Yeah. You know, so on a mental health level, in fact, it was actually really not taxing in the way that maybe other projects I've done where you really, it's ordinary times, but you're sort of, you know, struggling with burnout because you've gone from, you know, one show to the next show whilst redrafting a script in between. Yeah. Exactly. You get to go and play and interact and be mm. creative with others rather than locked in your own mm. own brain as such. Yeah. I mean, speaking speaking of being creative with others, I want to kind mm. of talk about your influences and inspirations because I'm, I've always yeah. been big on a lot of the people I study as an actor mm. aren't necessarily – I don't restrict my inspiration by gender, which is often yeah, yeah, a common yeah. mistake, I think. I look at Maxine Peake, I look at Juliet Stevenson mm. and these amazing people. And when I was looking over your career here, I was looking at the amazing women you've worked with in Carrie Mulligan, Hayley Squires, Billy mm. Piper, Amanda mm. Abington, um, mm. as we mentioned – Letitia Wright, Neve Algar, Rashanda, Zowie yeah. Ashton, Frida, mm. so many great uh, yeah. w- women. So mm. do you try and take influence there and try and, 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 and learn from others in, in, in that interactive way and it being a symbiotic yeah, relationship yeah, yeah. where yeah. you're getting stuff from each other? Totally. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, I come from a very matriarchal family, you know, where yeah. I think the women, my mum, my aunties – have shaped me most significantly as a human being. Um, so I never really came into the world operating through this sort of strange kind of patriarchal mentality. Yes, I was sort of battling the hypermasculinity growing up in South London that was prevalent in a lot of black men and having to battle those things myself. 
because that was never me, never who I was sort yeah. of internally, secretly listening to Nirvana on the bus, you yeah, know, yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah, get yeah. caught listening to indie, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, rock and all that stuff. But, you know, I sort of feel like Kurt Cobain and Tupac are like the same breed of person. And so, you know, for me, I've, ne- I've I just I've just always been inspired by by great human beings, whether they're male or female. You know, for me, the standard is about the humility of a person and who they are. And it just so happens that I've had the, the, the fortune of working with some brilliant women fiercely talented who I've, I've you know had to keep up with <laughs> you know because it's like right you know y'all setting the bar so high here and Denise Goff is a perfect example of that who I did people places and things with who showed me a performance level so high that I was like wow this is this is on another scale um, and then you know working with her and then I then I worked with Kerry Mulligan Again, who's just a, a force and, and sort of works in a completely different way. Um, and then working with Billy Piper, again, was just just a sort of joy. And just, I don't know, man. Yeah, I've been sort of lucky. It's been... It's been yeah. And, and, and I just guess I kind of... They would tell me stories about male actors who struggled to collaborate with them. And I always found that amazing, that, that sort of... Yeah. They had issues with sort of yeah. status and where they were. Whereas I, like I say, I'm, I'm just here to play. Whoever wants to play, let's just go. You know, I, I'm sort of going to treat you. To, I, I'm not going to play the scene differently. If it's Kerry Mulligan, Billy Piper, Babu, I'm still going to be coming with the same principles, you know, which is yeah. walking on set, treating people with respect and humility, being prepared and, you know, trying to win a scene. You know, but when I say yeah. trying to win a scene, I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean, like when you write scenes are about conflict, you know, two characters yeah. clash right in terms yeah, of intention yeah, yeah. and so i'm trying to win my you know what the writer's written for me i'm trying to win that in the scene and you know the writing may say that i lose but maybe that last moment i find it might be a quiet moment in the eyes the audience might be like well okay i'm i'm with him you know or i'm with her i love that it's 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 the trying mm. to win it's like the um mm. i bring this up all the time now but just i always remember hearing a yak malgram quote saying that that mm. the actors actors spend all their time tr- trying to cry and humans spend all yeah. their time trying not to cry and so i think it's so true i think it's so mm. true you're fighting mm. against it so even that the, the fact that even if you lose the argument or, or lose mm. in the scene of course you were trying to win you need to have been trying to win yeah yeah exactly throughout you can't let yourself who knows how it ends influence mm. the fact that in that moment you would have been f- fighting for it. Well, exactly. Look, nobody, when you watch a tennis match, even though, you know, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic are, are you know, three of the greats, you still want to see a contest. You know, yeah. I think that's it. It's conflict is, is comp- you know, that's sort of where the real drama lies. So, but you're doing it in a playful way. And you're doing it in a made up sort of realm. Super exciting. I love that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap things up as we're coming on to the hour mark. Mm. But before yeah, I yeah. do, I mean, I spoke earlier of stuff coming out at the start of a pandemic mm. and all this. I Hate Susie was one that dropped mm. r- r- right at the start of all this, and I adored it. I thought, as you said, Billy Piper absolutely mm. knocked it out of the park with her performance. But I loved you in another role where there's a lot of grey yeah. areas, man. There's points that this is the good guy. There's points that this is the bad guy. Yeah. It really varies. How was that as a character to get, to kind of maybe get the script and go, oh, I'm the... I'm the good standout mm-hmm. guy and then go, all right, it's not as yeah. simple as that. That's that's what's being portrayed. I love that role. I mean, that role was so yeah. complex. I mean, the way I play it, for me in my mind, this dude was sort of in love with falling in love, you know, in a very selfish... Yeah. Um, in love with the idea of being the good guy. Basically, such, yeah. And you then know? there's so much complexity yeah. within that and things to not like. But the way I played it, the what I discussed with Lucy Preble was that this affair for him is like a storyline and something he's written. And then that's how sort yeah. of egotistical this dude yeah, is. So, yeah, so it yeah. gave me license to sort of go full Romeo with it, you know, and in those love scenes and be ridiculously sort of, or oh, what's the word, romantic and uh, demonstrative. Uh, and then to pull back into something yeah. quite sinister, actually, where you realize that he's not really invested yeah. in anything. Yeah. He's not told his wife, he's not. And here's the thing. It's like human beings are complex, you know, and human nature is complex. So when you play those characters, in fact, even though they seem quite extreme, maybe they're just truer to the human experience than we realize. And actually the characters who are straight down the line, 100%. who appear to just be one thing, are actually not as sincerely sort of drawn. Yeah. But what a great, what a great show to be a part of. And I'd worked with Billy on Collateral, 
where I played a cop and I was just sort of like yeah. at her front door, bugging her, shaking her down, interrogating her. So it was great to, and we sort of became, you know, like good pals on that. Um, so it was great to sort of, you know, and then I'd worked with Anthony Nilsson loads, um, who was uh, Lucy Preble's partner at the Royal Court Theatre. And so uh, Lucy Preble right. knew my work through that. And then Anthony was directing some of the episodes and I Hate Susie. So it was a lovely sort of, you know, informal company coming together. Yeah, that must have been a, a relaxing one in that way. What, what you were saying there makes me think of a, a Fernando Pessoa mm. quote where I can't remember the exact words, but he used to say that we never truly fall in in love with anyone. And it sounds r- mm. really negative, but what he's saying is it's because we never truly know someone. Because the fact of the matter is the me that I am when I'm mm. around my mum is different to the me that I am when I'm around my mates is different to the me that I am around Mm. my partner or is different to the me that I am on set. So it's not a falseness or a fakeness. We just present many different versions. Therefore the, the one that we fall in love with isn't actually a real thing. We've made that Mm. character up Mm. and, and simplified it. So I think that's really interesting characters. So is that then because of the version of ourselves we can be with that person? Is that what, is that what you're sort of getting at? Yeah, or we present, again, not even, like, even subconsciously the version we present, but then on the other side, we want to see people in certain ways. It's why every relationship you've ever had that you've been madly in love, that when you're out of it, you can go, oh, man, they were a bit of a dick, or they were this or that. It's because you'd projected this version of them that wasn't a reality because we... I wanted to again the idea of in love with being in love, and again I think that's that's fascinating with character work because it allows you to present variations of that character, even if they're subtle variations. Absolutely, absolutely. In each scene, rather than I found my character, therefore here's yeah. where I am. It's like no, you found your character in that scene. That's it. That's not necessarily yeah him in every scenario or them in every scenario. That's exactly it, man. And you know, as an artist you know, as a writer, that that's the sort of stuff I'm really interested in, that that sort of where characters are operating on more than one level, you know, yeah. and not because they're deceitful, but because they're complex, you know. So, yeah, man. I love it. Well, I'm going to wrap things up there, man. It's flown by and it has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for taking the time. Absolute pleasure, mate. Sorry about those technicals. It's all good. We'll make yeah, it we'll work. We'll around that. Yeah, but bro, great, great talking to you, man. And you, man. Real, real pleasure to meet you. And hopefully we'll do it again. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Nathaniel. I told you it was a good one, didn't I? And I told you we kind of went in directions I wasn't expecting. But you can hear from my joy and excitement at every direction that we did did go in, you know? So, yeah, it was a hell of a chat. You know what? As If you've listened right until the end, which a lot of you you won't have, I'm going to let you know I'm giving you a little bonus on Friday. There'll be a little bonus in your feed on Friday, so give that a look. And then next week, I'm joined by Loki. And this is, again, you lot know I rarely pre-hype, but this is a big one, man. The conversation that we have is, it's dense, but it's, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, you're going to really enjoy that. So that's next Wednesday, but we're not there yet. We're not there. Take it easy. We'll get there. Until then, until Friday, in fact, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.